the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in studio after spending a glorious day at the Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. I want to thank you for lending uh, your pastors to us for the day. We hope they were blessed and had a great time. The weather was perfect. Had a great lunch together. Good fellowship and... Uh, just really grateful for the men and women who serve in our communities in the role of leaders. So it was a fun day. I want to remind you that today we're going to be giving away two pair of C.S. Lewis on stage uh, tickets for the performance Friday, August the 2nd at the Newmark Theater. Uh, so heads up for that. Since we weren't in studio live yesterday, we wanted to double up today and we'll be giving away our final pair of tickets tomorrow on the program. So make note of that. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines and from yesterday as well, former special counsel Robert Mueller's highly anticipated testimony on Capitol Hill on the findings of his report and whether the president committed obstruction during the investigation is the focus so far of the week. And the hearing will be the center of the news universe on Wednesday. It appears that top Democrats have made up their minds before Mueller has even been sworn in. In an interview on Fox News Sunday, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler accused President Trump of committing high crimes and misdemeanors and said the president infractions meet the standard of impeachment. Chris Wallace, who was the host, asked Nadler what Democrats will do if Mueller's testimony falls flat. And the House Judiciary Chairman said he expects the hearing to have an impact on the electorate and plans to ask specific fact-finding questions to help enlighten the public. Nadler also said he isn't worried about Republicans asking probing questions about the investigation's origins via the Steele dossier and claimed they'd only be wasting their time. The resolution to introduce articles of impeachment against the president was shot down last week. Two House Democrats, Representatives Al Green of Texas and Steve Cohen of Tennessee, have said they're not giving up. Uh, you can uh, continue to follow all of this, says I will, in the days ahead. But again, tomorrow, the Mueller testimony before uh, the uh, congressional panels. And as the heat wave gripped much of the country on Sunday, power outages reported in multiple states left hundreds of thousands of customers in the dark. Crews were working to restore power after heavy storms over two days knocked out power for more than 800,000 Michigan homes and businesses. In the New York City area, where all eyes were on the power grid even before the hot weather following a Manhattan blackout last weekend, electricity company Con Ed reportedly rough, reported rather roughly 12,000 scattered outages early Sunday evening, the vast majority in the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. And Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosello, he announced Sunday that he will not seek re-election, uh, but refused to resign as corruption allegations continue to fuel widespread protests in San Juan. Rosello, a Democrat, made the announcement Sunday in a four-minute Facebook video. He also said he agreed with the people's right to protest and was willing to confront the impeachment process, which already had begun in Puerto Rico's legislature. The controversial governor said although he will not resign as the island's leader, he will step down as head of his pro-statehood uh, party. Now, uh, that was not sufficient and protests have continued. 
Iran's intelligence ministry on Monday said it uncovered a U.S. Central Intelligence Agency spy ring arresting 17 suspects and sentencing some to death, according to a report from the country's semi-official news agency. The identified spies were employed in sensitive and vital private sector centers in the economic, nuclear, infrastructural, military and cyber areas where they collected classified information. According to the ministry statement read on state television, emails uh, to the CIA and State Department have not clarified those details as of yet. And after a tumultuous week in Washington, President Trump unexpectedly dropped in on the wedding of P.J. Mongeli and Nicole Marie Mongeli on Saturday night at the Trump National Golf Club Bedminster in New Jersey as enthusiastic attendees rather broke into chants of USA. Uh, the bride and groom are huge fans of the president, but dreamed of him attending their weddings and got engaged at the golf club in uh, 2017. Flags and pro-Trump banners could be seen at the event. As the president talked with members of the family, a man approached him and shouted, I'm the father, I'm the father, thank you so much. I'm not sure I would want to be upstaged by the president um, but we'll leave it at that. All eyes will be on special counsel Robert Mueller this uh, week as he delivers his first public testimony. And uh, as we've since learned, there he will be accompanied by his attorney. There were some question as to whether or not the attorney would also be testifying. It appears at this point, although it's not uh, confirmed, that he will only be offering advice uh, to the special prosecutor. Uh, the anticipation over the Wednesday testimony comes as Congress is facing a jam-packed week. Lawmakers wind down their work ahead of the August recess. And by the way, we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He's a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs. And we'll be talking about the budget deal, the um, Trump fiscal legacy, which, if this passes, will be no different than Obama or Bush, and in some ways worse. And again, we're narrowing it to fiscal legacy. On top of the new spending, the deal suspends the debt limit for the next two years, piling on as much as $2 trillion more in debt. And this, of course, suspends the 2011 deal to uh, uh, fix the debt ceiling. Well, the Trump administration is giving taxpayer-funded family planning clinics more time to comply with its new rule. Uh, that says no one, uh, they can no longer refer women for abortions. A notice sent Saturday night to representatives of the clinics by the Department of Health and Human Services said the government does not intend to bring enforcement actions against clinics that are making good faith efforts to comply. The department has said last Monday that it would require immediate compliance, so they've given them a bit more room. And given the uh, radical Antifa group's well-documented history of violence, Senators Ted Cruz and Bill Cassidy, one Democrat, one Republican, uh, introduced a resolution on the 18th that condemns Antifa's violent acts and calls for the designation of the group as a domestic terrorist organization. We'll follow that story. The Trump administration disputed a claim by Iran's state media uh, on Monday that authorities in the Middle East arrested these 17 secret agents recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency to spy on its nuclear and military sites. Iran's semi-official Fars News Agency said some of them have been sentenced to death. It wasn't clear if all the alleged spies were Iranian nationals. And Equifax has agreed to pay as much as $700 million to settle a series of state and federal investigations into a massive 2017 data breach that left more than 147 million American Social Security numbers, credit card details, and other sensitive information exposed. Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern of New Zealand on Monday announced plans for sweeping new restrictions on gun ownership. 
the second such wave of changes since a deadly shooting at two mosques in Christchurch earlier this year. The changes include a mandatory gun registry and a ban on gun purchases by foreign visitors will enshrine in law that owning a firearm is a privilege rather than a right, Ms. Ardern uh, said. And a top government watchdog has joined whistleblowers in rebuking U.S. Customs and Border Protection for allegedly failing to collect DNA from detained migrants so the samples could be checked against an FBI database for violent crimes. The whistleblowers specifically allege that the DNA pilot program was put on hold during the Obama administration and efforts to implement it under the Trump administration have been derailed. Meanwhile, a legal battle is expected as the Trump administration announced plans to expand fast track deportations. Now, we've had this um, uh, announcement made on several occasions and it hasn't quite uh, worked the way we've been uh, warned. But once again, The announcement was made to uh, expand the fast-track deportations. Officials are extending the power uh, immigration officials uh, have to deport migrants before they appear at court. A move the White House said could uh, mean less time for migrants to uh, in detention while cases wind their way through the legal system. The American Civil Liberties Union and the American Immigration Council promised that they would sue to block the policy that is expected to begin this week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to give away our first pair of C.S. Lewis on stage tickets, the most reluctant convert. That's coming up when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, C.S. Lewis uh, on stage, the most reluctant convert, is coming to the stage at the Newmark Theater here in the Portland area on the 2nd and 3rd of August. The Most Reluctant Convert is adapted exclusively from C.S. Lewis' writings and his journey from atheism to uh, one of the most uh, to Christianity and to become one of the most vibrant and influential Christian intellectuals of the 21st century. Um, we are going to be giving away a pair of tickets now, and we'll do that again uh, later this hour. We'd love to have you uh, come to the Friday night performance. That's August the 2nd, 8 p.m. at the Newmark Theater on Broadway in uh, Portland. We want to give that uh, pair of tickets away to the fourth caller and the number to call 800-845-2162. 1-800-845-2162. Max McLean is the founder and artistic director of New York City's based Fellowship uh, for Performing Arts. Uh, They have produced theater from a Christian worldview, presented in leading performance venues all around the country, created to engage diverse audiences. And this is their latest, um, C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. Again, that pair of tickets for the Friday, August 2nd performance, 8 o'clock p.m. at the Newmark Theater in Portland. And the number, 800-845-2162. Looking forward to that. By the way, we're going to be giving away... uh, Family four packs of tickets to the Gospel Sing Music Festival here in uh, in about a week. So heads up for that. We'll be doing that for the next uh, little season as well. We'll give away another pair of tickets for C.S. Lewis uh, in the second hour of today's program. And then again tomorrow. And that will conclude our ticket giveaway for this wonderful performance. Continuing to look at the headlines, the Trump administration and congressional leaders, including Democrats, have reached that critical debt and budget agreement. 
that all but eliminates the risk of another government shutdown this fall, but that has already drawn fierce blowback from fiscal conservatives worried about the overspending as well as progressives unhappy with where the money could go. The deal was announced last night. It uh, requires congressional approval would increase spending caps uh, by $320 billion relative to the limit prescribed in the 2011 Budget Control Act, which is all but dead, whose spending control provisions have been repeatedly waived since 2014. It also would suspend the debt ceiling and permit more government borrowing uh, until the 31st of July, 2021. We'll be talking with Justin Boggy about that when he joins me in studio in the five o'clock hour. Also want to let you know that uh, in our next couple of segments, we'll talk with Craig Austin. He is the author of American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. He'll be joining us as the co-author of that book and uh, look forward to that conversation. More than 100 violent criminals have been released under the First Step Act, President Trump's signature bipartisan criminal justice reform package, according to data from an administration official. Uh, The data, first obtained exclusively by Tucker Carlson tonight, seemingly contradicted lawmakers' promises that the legislation would largely affect only prisoners sentenced for minor drug-related offenses. Of the 2,243 inmates released under the First Step Act, only 960 were incarcerated for drug-related offenses. On the other hand, 496 were in prison for weapons, explosives-related crimes, 239 for sex offenses, 178 for fraud, bribery, or extortion, 118 for burglary, larceny, and 106 for robbery, according to the data. Another 59 were imprisoned over homicide, aggravated assault, 46 for immigration-related offenses, 9 for counterfeiting, embezzlement, and 2 for national security reasons. Well, over the past weekend, legendary New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady became either father of the year or the dad who really ought to know better. Coming off his sixth Super Bowl championship last season, Brady posted a vacation video on Instagram. can be a dangerous thing these days, showing him and his six-year-old daughter, Vivian, leaping off a small cliff in Costa Rica to a pool below. He captioned the post, if Vivi is going to be an Olympic champion one day, it probably won't be in synchronized diving. Daddy always gives her a 10, though. Well, the stunt resulted in plenty of extreme reactions online, especially from Tom Brady haters. According to Real Clear Investigations, a soon-to-be-filed report by Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz, alleges that former FBI Director James Comey was secretly trying to build a conspiracy case against the president while at times acting as an investigative agent. Paul Sperry cites two U.S. officials briefed on the IG's investigation into possible FBI misconduct who say the former director was effectively running a covert operation against Trump, which started with a defensive briefing Um, he privately gave Trump a few weeks before his inauguration. And the Trump administration on Tuesday proposed a rule to tighten food stamp eligibility that would cut about 3.1 million people from the program, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Homeland Security announced an aggressive new policy to fast track deportations of recent immigrants caught in the caught in the living rather in the U.S. illegally looking to expand a tool that's been used successfully at the border for years. Expedited removal allows immigration officers to order a deportation without the extensive immigration court proceedings and appeals that accompany other removals. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday ruled against the Trump administration's policy allowing for the indefinite detention of certain asylum seekers, saying a lower court ruling temporarily blocks 
um, uh, that blocking that ruling can remain in place. And as of April 16th, 2019, nine states, including California, Illinois and New Jersey, claim to be sanctuary states. While numerous counties and cities in other states also say that they will protect illegal immigrants by refusing to cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement. Yesterday, Montgomery County, Maryland's largest county official joined that list. County Executive Mark Elric will sign an executive order that will keep the area from cooperating with ICE, even though the policy has been unofficially on the books for some time. And Trump's approval rating hit 44 percent in the new NPR NewsHour Marist poll, the highest level at which it's uh, been recorded in any mainstream opinion poll, with the exception of a July 7th Washington Post poll that records 47 percent approval. And Britain's next prime minister will be Boris Johnson after he won a ballot vote of Conservative Party members against Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. It was announced today he will replace outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May on Wednesday after she announced her resignation last month amid failure to lead the nation out of the European Union. And on this day in history, 1829, William Austin Burt receives a patent for his typographer. It's a forerunner to the typewriter. Some of you have no idea what that is, given the 21st century, but anyway, it was a big deal. And on this day in 1914, Austria-Hungary presents a list of demands to Serbia following the killing of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Serbian assassin. Serbia's refusal to agree to the entire ultimatum leads to the outbreak of World War I. And on this day in history, 1999, Space Shuttle Columbia blasts off with the world's most powerful X-ray telescope and Eileen Collins, the first woman to command a U.S. space flight. And on this day in history, 2001, Pope John Paul II urges President George W. Bush in their first meeting held at Castel Gandolfo, Italy, to bar creation of human embryos for medical research. As I mentioned, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with a co-author of American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. The book is uh, uh, co-authored with Timothy Goglian, who happens to be a um, work with Focus on the Family. He's the Vice President for External and Government Relations at Focus on the Family in Washington, D.C., and he served in high-level government posts for two decades, including Press Secretary for former Senator Dan Coats of Indiana, Special Assistant to President George W. Bush, and Deputy Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison. He, along with uh, Craig Austin, um, collaborated with several best-selling authors to Uh, Write the book American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. That's coming up in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, America seems to be crumbling from within. We seem to be in trouble. Now, people may define the reasons for that in different ways, but in our 250-year experiment in ordered liberty, has it really run its course? Or is there hope for an American restoration? Well, in American Restoration, published by Regnery, my guest and his co-author, Vice President for External and Government Relations at Focus on the Family, Uh, and former political reporter and ardent student of history, they make the case that an American restoration is not only possible, but probable if we act now. Now, is this a political solution? Should we storm Washington with solutions we think ought to be implied, or rather applied? Well, the key to an American restoration is for Christians to engage with the current culture. 
rather than flee from it. They argue that Christians have the unique opportunity and calling to be salt and light that will renew our culture. This engagement has to take place, especially at the local level where real spiritual and cultural transformation occurs. Well, the book is a roadmap back to restoration for Americans. And the pair of authors explain how Americans, with God's help, can renew 15 critical components of our culture today. Well, my guest is Craig Osten. He has collaborated with several best-selling authors on more than a dozen books, a former political reporter and an ardent student of history. He graduated from the University of California, Davis, and did graduate work at California State University, Sacramento, and Fuller Theological Seminary. He, along with his co-author, Timothy Gaglian, Vice President for External and Government Relations at Focus on the Family, present a roadmap if we would like to see the restoration of the American ideals that at least have been aspirational throughout our nation's history. Craig Olston, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. Let me invite you to begin with to uh, outline the, the concerns that you have for the state of the nation and how important it is for us to take seriously, first of all, the, the a need for, uh, for change in the culture and the role that we might play in it. Well, we are at a crossroads. I mean, all you have to do is watch the news every night, see the culture. We're a culture who's no longer talking to each other. Instead, we're screaming at each other. And as a result, there is no way that we can come together as a country and, one, deal with issues we need to deal with. But, two, it's, it's we have become so divided that we're no longer talking to each other. And that's having just our horrible effect on our communities, our neighborhoods, and our homes. And all of these things are helping. And when we don't deal with the issues at that level, the whole structure of our country starts to fall apart. What role do you think the church has played either in this disintegration or the hopeful um, restoration of one nation under God? Well, the church on one hand, you know, unfortunately, I mean, Along you know, about 30, 40 years ago, a lot of churches, unfortunately, chose to sort of check out and not engage the culture. We kind of retreated and said, okay, we're just going to do our own thing. Let the culture be the culture. Well, when the church retreats, that means everything else, everything else can go into that vacuum that it created. So that's one of the issues. However, the other hand, the church can also can help redeem the culture, can help be salt and light, can help show how it can affirm human life, how it can affirm marriage, how it can affirm religious freedom, if the church is willing to, and we as Christians are willing to engage rather than with dog draw the culture. Uh, one example we share in the book is in the church I attend to, attend, we have we are a pro-life church, and one way we do that show our pro-life beliefs is we have a need for special uh, ministry for special needs children and those families, which affirms those families, and it shows that every life is valuable. Mm-hmm. Now, what role does the, the clergy play in all of this? Is this a responsibility or a role that individuals see themselves playing as part of the body of Christ? Is this a, 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 the absence of leadership? Uh, behind the pulpit in churches, where do you see this emerging on the individual level as a community in the church or from church leadership or perhaps a combination of all three? It's a combination of all three. Obviously, church leaderships are, are called to inspire their, 
to, you know, to inspire their congregations, to teach, you know, God's word, you know, as, and to, you know, to proclaim God's truth. But as individuals, we are also called to be salt and light to our culture. And just not come on Sunday morning and be passive attenders, but to, but to go out and be Christ to our neighbors, to our communities, not withdraw into our homes, not talk to our neighbors, not, you know, to, we, you know, so often we go on Sunday and we don't engage with anybody during the week in terms of those who we can influence in our community around us. And it's amazing what can happen when you start to interact with people who you would think would totally disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I have seen this in my own life where I've been able to build bridges to people who are totally on the other side of the political spectrum. And we've been able to find common ground. That's because I reached out to them with dignity and respect and showed that I cared about them as a person and showed that I was, I wanted to listen to them and that allowed me, them, they were open to listening to me, but I had, I had to, you know, reach out and also not come across as someone who is going to preach to them, but to someone who's going to share my views in a manner that is respectful and is reasoned and well-mannered. And it's amazing the dialogues I've been able to have. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're called to do as, as individuals and, and, and as the church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, American Restoration really provides a roadmap back to uh, restoring the values that uh, we um, at least aspirationally um, believe the, uh, uh, the country uh, should be focused on. Can you walk us through some of these uh, areas in which w- this roadmap takes us toward restoration? Well, first of all, some of the issues we deal with is, first of all, our first chapter dealing, first of all, with our, you know, restoring our Judeo-Christian foundation, which we have forsaken in so many ways, remembering what our foundation comes from, where our nation was founded. Without that foundation, you can't really start without on all the other values. Um, one of my great heroes is uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, and I've studied him immensely, and I've written another book on him uh, with someone else. And when you read, he had a statement from his 1953 inaugural address where he said, a people who values principles over privileges soon loses both. Uh, and so that is so true. If we have, for, so if we, we have forgotten those initial principles upon which our nation was founded, and we just focused on the privileges. So you have to start going back and focusing on the principles first. Now, what and do you say to those, excuse, excuse the interruption, but what do you say to those who focus on the crack in the foundation? Uh, certainly, um, ordered liberty was unevenly applied in our nation's history. We haven't uh, seen uh, the nation uh, progress perfectly, uh, but the principles upon which the nation was founded that were aspirational, that we still presumably aspire yeah. to, what do you say to those who focus only on the cracks in the foundation and perhaps have no idea of what that, um, those founding principles were uh, because of that focus only on our shortcomings? Right. Well, well I say the principles were sound. The problem is we as, as human beings, and, as, and especially as Christians, we know men are imperfect. And we know we're sinners, and we know we're we're, we're going to make mistakes along the way, and bad mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, cracks like slavery and racism. 
things that were, are, were horrible and should be denounced. But the bottom line is you don't, you don't want to throw the baby, to use the old cliche, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we, by focusing on the cracks, we, we, we forget those, those principles, which will, which are still a strong, strong foundation. Absolutely. So, Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again. We're talking about uh, the book title America, uh, I should say American Restoration, How Faith, Family and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. If you're looking to Washington to resolve all of the issues, you might be looking in the wrong place, perhaps a bit closer to home. As the book suggests, we ought to begin. We'll continue our conversation with one of the two co-authors in a moment. So stay with us. Craig Austin will join us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation this afternoon with a co-author of American Restoration. My guest is Craig Osten. Uh, the uh, book uh, is about how faith, family, and personal sacrifice can heal our nation. I think a lot of people are very skeptical about the prospect of restoring Americans, uh, American values. Uh, but you, in this roadmap, um, explain how Americans, how average folks like me and you, with God's help, can renew 15 critical components of our culture today. Um, you're more optimistic, and I suppose that small phrase, with God's help, uh, fuels that optimism. Yes, it does. We have to remember, first of all, we can't do anything without God. Yes. Um, as, as we're reminded, without Christ, we can do nothing. Um, and the, the other issue is, we have, if we have a hopeful view, then that can fuel us to take the steps, rather than that we need to take to restore our culture. And we need to keep focused, and we need to persevere. Unfortunately, so many times as Christians, we've given up. And we haven't persevered, and and well, those who oppose our values and you know, or and who are you know advancing anti-Christian stuff in the culture, they always have their eye on the goal. They're always persevering. Um, I grew up in San Francisco in the 1960s and 70s, so I kind of saw how things changed there, mm-hmm. and and I you know I was. I saw how the culture changed, how the churches changed, how the schools changed, and everything. And those who opposed our values were very focused on what they wanted to do. And even when they weren't successful, they kept at it, they kept at it, they kept at it. Unfortunately, what we do is sometimes if we win something, we go, oh, good, we can take a deep breath and walk away. This is a long-term effort, and it starts in our homes. Again, it's if we can't put these instill these things in our children then we in our families then how can we instill them in the community so we need to start there and start with our neighbors and start with our communities but that's exactly how the those who oppose our values did it they kind of gave us a roadmap um and what we're talking about in this book is this is the roadmap to reclaim these principles in each of these areas, but it's going to take perseverance. It's going to take faithfulness. 
Yeah. I think for many of us, when there has been a political defeat, that's sort of our our gauge as to whether or not to continue in a particular fight. But what you're talking about is much more grassroots, close to home, beginning with how we conduct ourselves as individuals that then can be translated into cultural change and impact, uh, which I think is much more approachable and more hopeful. Yes. Government is not going to solve any problems. Rather, it's on the Rather, your perspective is on the left or the right, really. I mean, the left looks towards government, but so many times we, on those of us who are conservatives and Christians, have looked to government as, oh, we get the right person in office, great, we'll be we'll be fine, and we go back to you know to our or to our huddles, and meanwhile the culture continues to rot underneath us. Well, we may you know we might have someone who's more, you know friendly towards our values in the White House or in Congress and so forth. So we have to, we have to start there in our homes, and, and it has to bubble up rather than expecting to come from the top down. Yeah. And it bubbles up through our, through our faith, through our actions. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, again, let's look at some of these areas uh, that this roadmap um, helps to guide us through. One of them is restoring religious liberty and um, there's growing concern about whether or not we can maintain what the Constitution guarantees, but uh, doesn't uh, suggest that the state is the originator of religious uh, freedom, religious liberty. Um, and there's growing concern that that capacity may be uh, waning um, in our uh, culture today. Talk about that and some of the other uh, areas of restoration that this book focuses on. Well, religious liberty is so huge because without that, which is our first liberty, without a religious liberty, none of our other liberties can be possible because it's what's religious liberty that allows, you know, freedom of speech, allows freedom of association, all our other freedoms. Now, that is so important. Um, when you are telling someone that they cannot live out, you know, their most deepest beliefs, that they have to suppress that you are denying the core essence of an individual. And also a key thing about faith is how, again, how we treat others. You know, as Christians, we are called to see people in the image of God, to treat them with dignity and respect. Part of that way is to treat them, one, to treat them as God sees them, but also to speak truth into their lives. Without being able to do that, you know, which often, which will come through often our religious freedom and showing the love of Christ through our faith, then we we can't even begin to you know the other steps to restoration. Um, it's our faith that helps that you know in, that compels us to be involved in the life issue, because again we we see each person as you know, worthy of digging respect mm-hmm. in the image of God. So that it compels that area. It's our faith that compels us, you know, for, uh, men to be gentlemen, to treat women with respect, as we talk about in the chapter. It's our faith that instills the virtues that of tower, you know, of fortitude and so forth that, you know, help us with our faith. It's, it's our faith that compels us to be good citizens. So without religious freedom and ability to live out our faith, and we can't do all those other things that will, that will allow us to, you know, be Christ to the culture around us. 
You also have chapters on restoring virtue, restoring civility, and restoring community. Again, these are very approachable. This is where we live. This is what we're doing. This is who we associate with. And it gives us a sense of, um, I can make a real difference without having to hop on a plane and fly to Washington and try to persuade. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an important part of what we, we need to do as well is influence um, uh, yeah. policymakers, but it doesn't, it's not limited to that. And I appreciate your emphasis on it's important what I'm doing as an individual, my character and how I relate to others in my community. Right. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're never calling any, we're not calling anybody to ignore what's going on in Washington, D.C. As Christians, we are called and we are commanded to be involved in our government. So that, you know, if anybody construes that we're saying that, that, that is wrong. But we are called to engage with people, the culture. I'll, I'll give you just a personal example, and I don't mean this to build myself up. But last year I had my 40th high school reunion, again, back in San Francisco, not an area that's really friendly to conservative Christianity. Um, you know, I have friends that I grew up with. They're, they're, most of them are very liberal at this point. Most of them are in the different belief systems and so forth. But I've gone back there, and I've always tried to treat them with dignity and respect. They know who I am. They know what I stand for. But I've tried. I've engaged in conversation with them rather than coming in and attacking them right away. As a result, at my 40th reunion, I had more opportunities to share my faith than I've ever had before. I had one friend who's a very liberal college administrator, very, you know, against our current president and so forth. Who asked me a question about what I thought? And I said, well, I would like to talk to you more about that. It was over dinner. It was kind of difficult. I reached out to her. We had a very nice email exchange, and she appreciated how we could thoughtfully discuss things. Yeah. And she came, thing, came across and said, you know, I realize I wish we could get back to the original concept of religious freedom as we have, you know, as was met in our Constitution. We are able to find common ground but it was through respectful dialogue. That's how you change hearts. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is titled American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. It is a hopeful book and gives us a roadmap on how to arrive at that destination. Thank you so much for collaborating with your co-author and for taking the time to uh, share uh, some of your book with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you very much. Again, my guest, uh, Craig Osten, author of American Restoration, How Faith, Family, and Personal Sacrifice Can Heal Our Nation. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a few moments, but a couple of reminders. Uh, In the next hour, we're going to be giving away our second pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. And we're also going to talk with Justin Boggy, who is a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Grover Herman Center for Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the budget deal and um, whether or not it is consistent with uh, the Trump campaign promises of some three years ago and what his fiscal legacy is likely to be if this, in fact, passes. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, we are going to give away right now. I don't even know if Clark knows this. We're going to give away our second pair of tickets to C.S. Lewis on stage, 
the most reluctant convert. The show is Friday, August the 2nd, 8 p.m. at Newmark Theater on Broadway. There is a second performance on Saturday night at 4, but we're giving tickets away to the Friday night performance, and we would love for you to have this pair of tickets. And by the way, uh, you can pick them up, and we'll call. You'll need to bring valid ID and arrive. Uh, Clark will give you all the details uh, 30 minutes before the performance. But we're talking about The Most Reluctant Convert. It's ad- adapted exclusively from C.S. Lewis' writings, his journey from atheism to faith and to becoming one of the most vibrant and influential Christian intellectuals of the 20, 20th century. Um, Max McLean is the performer for this production, and I've seen the others that have come to this area. You will not be disappointed. He's the founder and artistic director of New York City-based Fellowship for Performing Arts. It produces theater from a Christian worldview presented in leading performance venues all across the nation, created to engage diverse audiences, and it's uh, he's uh, an award-winning uh, actor and uh, presenter, so this is going to be a great opportunity here in the Portland area. We want to give away um, this a pair of tickets. This will be the next to the last, the final being tomorrow, to caller number 2, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162, caller number 2, a pair of tickets to the Friday, August 2nd performance of C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. The show is at 8 p.m. at the Newmark Theater on Broadway in Portland. Well, the Senate overwhelmingly passed a bipartisan bill to ensure a victim's compensation fund related to September 11th attacks never runs out of money, fulfilling a pledge that was made by President Trump, ending years of uncertainty as the fund rapidly depleted. A lawmaker sent the bill to the president's desk uh, after a 97-2 vote in favor of the legislation. Only two Republicans, Senators Rand Paul and Mike Lee, voted no. They were not opposed to the fund, but thought it should be paid for, that they should have included how we're going to pay for it. Paul wrote on Twitter, while I support our heroic first responders, I can't in good conscience vote for legislation, which to my dismay remains unfunded. We have a nearly trillion dollar deficit and $22 trillion in debt. Spending is out of control, end quote. At least he's consistent. He went on to add, as I have done on countless issues, including disaster relief and wall funding, I will always take a stand against borrowing more money to pay for programs rather than setting priorities and cutting waste. Well, September 11th, first responders, John Feel, um, said that uh, Trump uh, contacted him by phone on Tuesday and told him the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund bill would be passed by the Senate that day and signed into law on Friday. The bill's going to um, to get passed today, the president said, and it was. Well, the vote came after New York Senators uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Chuck Schumer, both Democrats, reached an agreement with Lee and Paul to bring up the bill with two amendments sponsored by GOP senators. Both Paul and Lee, again, the dissenters, had been blocking a vote. Rand Paul said he was concerned about the effect on the deficit, while um, Mike Lee uh, called for ensuring the fund had proper oversight in places in place rather to prevent fraud and um, and abuse. So they did at least vote on that. As part of the deal, Democrats agreed to allow Lee and Paul to bring up amendments addressing their concerns. Gillibrand called the GOP amendments needless and callous and predicted they would be defeated easily. Now, while I agree this is an absolutely necessary fund, part of the problem in Washington is that when there's accountability associated with any spending measure, and this pair has at least been consistent with all kinds of spending, it's referred to as needless and callous. At some point, Congress needs to stop and take a look at uh, whether or not we can actually pay for what we're funding. Now, that's also the case with the uh, budget deal, which um, uh, was agreed upon. It hasn't passed yet, but agreed upon earlier 
uh, this week. In fact, we'll talk with Justin Boggy about that uh, later in this hour. He's a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs. Um, but this um, unwillingness to look at some of the hard uh, facts behind some of what they're supporting is uh, a weakness on the part of Congress. This is not an isolated event. Well, the Senate confirmed former attorney uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel Mark Esper as Secretary of Defense today, marking him the first permanent Pentagon boss since James Mattis resigned way back in December. Esper, who served 10 years on active duty, 11 years in the National Guard and Army Reserve, was acting secretary before his nomination, and Patrick Shanahan had been acting secretary prior to that. Well, the vote was not close, with the Senate confirming Esper with a vote of 90 to 8. The no votes included 2020 Democratic presidential candidates Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. Warren and Esper had a tense exchange during a confirmation hearing before the Senate Armed Service Committee when she challenged his refusal to completely recuse himself from any and all matters related to Raytheon, the uh, defense contractor for which he served as a lobbyist before joining the government. Esper said that ethics personnel told him not to fully recuse himself. Earlier in the hearing, he said he was fully committed to living up to my ethics commitments and would employ a robust screening process and remain in constant contact with our ethics personnel. On the day of that hearing, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell lauded Esper, calling him a man of honor and integrity, dedicated to our nation and committed to the men and women who serve in uniform. Again, former Army Lieutenant Colonel Mark Esper is now the Secretary of Defense, having uh, been approved earlier today. Well, House lawmakers are gearing up for their highly anticipated public hearing with former special counsel Robert Mueller next week. Democratic members and staff of the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees in recent days have held closed-door meetings to lay out their game plan in advance of Mueller's testimony. Judiciary lawmakers say they're uh, painstakingly planning their questions to maximize their time with Mueller. But members on both sides of the aisle are keeping their specific lines of questioning close to the vest. All the members are dreaming up the questions that they want to ask, but says um, Representative Jamie Raskin. I think that the chairman and the committee staff are trying to impose an overarching structure and methodology to the questioning, which is good. A member of the judiciary panel said we have to make sure that we cover a lot of terrain in a very short period of time. Well, Mueller is slated to testify tomorrow for three hours before the Judiciary Committee and two hours before the Intelligence Committee in back-to-back hearings. Judiciary's hearings is expected to focus largely on the episodes of potential obstruction. And while Mueller didn't reach a conclusion on whether President Trump obstructed the probe, Democrats say his report contains clear evidence that he engaged in conduct for which any other American would be held Uh, would have been charged, rather, with criminal wrongdoing. Committee staff told reporters on Thursday that many questions will focus on five particular episodes laid out in second volume, the second volume of the report, including Trump's instruction to former White House counsel Don McGahn to have Mueller removed and Trump's effort to have former campaign aide Corey Lewandowski persuade then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to limit the investigation. Intelligence lawmakers, on the other hand, are expected to focus on the contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia laid out in volume one of that report. And while Mueller did not charge anyone associated with the campaign with conspiring with Russia, Democrats say his documentation contains troubling details that have been obscured by Trump and Attorney General William Barr. Uh, Mueller says he will not go beyond the f- the four corners of his report and lawmakers and committee staff are conscious of that, conscious of that. 
As they ready their questions, uh, broadly, Democrats say they'll be satisfied as long as Mueller unpacks the details of his report so the American public can understand what he found. People think in narratives, says uh, Representative Madeline Dean, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, a judiciary member. There is an incredibly damning set of narratives in this report. And so that's uh, what we need Mr. Mueller to show. So in other words, simply repeat what's already there, believing that the majority of the American people who are interested haven't bothered to read the report or incapable of interpreting it or maybe just don't care. Well, Democrats say there are still multiple gaps of information they want Mueller to fill. He won't. Representative Val Demnings, um, a member of both committees, said she's interested in learning more about conversations between Mueller and Barr. Obviously, there was disagreement there. That was so strong that the special counsel felt the need to memorialize it in a memo. In, and uh, and intelligence staffers signaled Thursday that members would ask questions beyond the confines of the report, which Mr. Mueller has already said he will not um, uh, speak to. So then you have the Republicans who want to focus their time and attention, should they get some. Uh, they've expressed fears about Mueller's appearance, stating that he would easily uh, light more pro-impeachment fires if he uses certain words that have different connotations, purposely or unintentionally. And there are more um, things to focus on, they say, primarily uh, the, uh, the the fact that the report uh, and the investigation began with faulty uh, beginning. So all of that's tomorrow, and uh, we'll try to follow that as closely as is humanly possible. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Twenty minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Justin Boggy. He is a senior policy analyst. We'll talk about the uh, budget deal um, that the president indicates he's all for uh, that uh, the Treasury Secretary and Nancy Pelosi have signed off on. Well, the administration and these congressional leaders have reached this critical debt, their budget agreement that uh, all but eliminates the risk of another government shutdown this fall, but has already drawn some uh, pretty fierce blowback from fiscal conservatives worried about the overspending, as well as progressives unhappy with where that money will go. We'll talk more about that with uh, Justin when he joins us a bit later in the program. Well, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons is freeing over 3,000 inmates under a criminal justice reform measure. It's the largest group to be released since the president signed the bipartisan First Step Act into law less than than seven months ago. The law's second chance um, hiring program funds job training and reentry initiatives to help former prisoners gain employment. The president outlined the major public-private partnership last month at the White House. And I think for most people, this sounds like a good plan to to reduce recidivism, to help uh, reincorporate individuals who fall within uh, a certain uh, parameter of nonviolent crime back into society with a, a reasonable chance of success. The Justice Department announced the release of the inmates on Friday, saying it was the result of an increase and good conduct time under the First Step Act that rewards prisoners with shorter sentences for good behavior. I have questions about this good behavior thing, because depending on the particular crime uh, and the victims of the crime, good behavior while incarcerated may or may not reflect in every case. And I've seen some instances in which I question whether or not good behavior should have been taken into account. You certainly want to have an incentive for those who are incarcerated to behave well. Uh, But nonetheless, um, other privileges rather than release might be considered. And this is just my 
observation. But uh, in any case, the Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen uh, told reporters uh, last Friday that starting today at prisons around the country, nearly 3,100 inmates are being released from the Bureau of Prisons custody due to the increase in good conduct time applied to reduce their sentences under the First Step Act. Now, we were told there were certain kinds of crimes that would be exempt from this program, and it, it appears at this point that that may not, in fact, Uh, be the case. But the president signed the legislation into law on the 21st of December. The Bureau of of Prisons oversees 180,248 federal inmates. Just last month, officials announced the release of 2,200 of them. Most of the new inmates set for release had drug-related criminal records, lived in halfway houses across the country, acting Bureau of Prisons chief said at a news conference in Washington. The first step, uh, inmates had an opportunity to get their sentence time reduced and participate in recidivism programs to prepare for their release. The Justice Department said nearly 3,100 inmates worked with probation officers to create individualized release plans to ensure a smooth transition. So it seems well thought out in preparation for their release. The plans include drug treatment, post-release employment aid, and youth mentorship, among others. The Justice Department also announced 1,691 sentence reductions through retroactive application of the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act which the agency said reduces the disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine threshold amounts, triggering mandatory minimum sentences, which tended to uh, give heavier sentences to minority inmates than uh, Caucasian. Our communities are safer when we do a better job of rehabilitating offenders in their in our custody and preparing them for a successful transition to life after incarceration. The attorney general Uh, said in a prepared statement. He went on to say the Justice Department is committed to and has been working toward full implementation of the First Step Act, which will help us effectively deploy resources to help reduce risk, recidivism and crime. Another major development related to the implementation of this program is what officials call the risk and needs assessment system. And according to Justice, the system will help identify all federal inmates who would qualify for pre-release custody by participating in recidivism reduction programming and productive activity. So again, preparing for the possibility of release. Congress authorized $75 million for each fiscal year from 2019 to 2023 for the Justice Department to implement this new law. And they've already uh, redirected $75 million for implementation in fiscal 2019, which ends uh, September 30th, and said it's going to work with Congress to ensure more funds are appropriated for the future. Now, again, they authorized $75 million for each year, uh, fiscal year from 2019 to 2023. And uh, they've already essentially blown through the 2019 amount, and they're planning on going back to Congress to ensure more funds are appropriated for those years yet to come. Well, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rossello, he announced on Sunday he's uh, not going to seek reelection. He refused to resign, however, as corruption allegations have sparked some protests pretty widespread in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, Rossello, a, a Democrat member of the territory's new progressive party, made the announcement on Sunday in a four minute Facebook video. He also said he agreed with people's right to protest and was willing to confront the impeachment process, which already began in Puerto Rico's legislature. The embattled governor said, although he will not resign as the island's leader, he will step down as head of his pro-statehood party. Well, in the video, he acknowledged his mistakes and 
pointed out that he had apologized in the past. He didn't offer a formal apology in the video on Sunday, but referred to previous apologies. Many of the citizens there have called for his resignation after leaked online chats showed him insulating uh, or rather insulting women and political opponents, as well as mocking victims of Hurricane Maria, one of the most devastating natural disasters to hit the island territory. His official residence has been under siege this week as hundreds of thousands of protesters gathered outside the governor's official residence. There's been an outcry. The media-friendly governor had uh, avoided public appearances since the 11th of July, making only four brief appearances, breaking from his usual three or four lengthy news conferences, in addition to multiple media appearances, and in fact made his announcement on Facebook. A wave of protests hit the island this past Friday. Union workers marching toward the... uh, Governor's uh, mansion from the nearby waterfront, horseback riders, hundreds of other people also joined in that march, as well as smaller protests also breaking out across the island over the weekend. Most people uh, were expected to hit the streets uh, this week as well. Well, the calls to oust the governor have caught the attention of the mainland uh, U.S. and several officials, including presidential uh, candidate Julian Castro. They've come out in support of the protesters. Castro is a Democrat, openly called for the governor to step down, saying it's clear that uh, the governor can no longer be effective. Senator Rick Scott, Republican out of Florida, and Representative Nida Velasquez, a Democrat from New York, as well as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, are also calling for his ouster. Some well-known athletes uh, with ties to the island also urged the governor to resign last week. Uh, Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism earlier this month published nearly 900 pages of private messages between the governor and several other government officials. In one of those messages, he called one New York female politician a Puerto Rican dissent, and I won't repeat the word, but it is insulting, and described another as the daughter of an insulting word as well. One chat also made vulgar references to uh, Ricky Martin's um, orientation. Well, during a July 11th news conference, Rossello asked Puerto Ricans to forgive him for the comments he made in private and further media appearances. He continued to ask for forgiveness over the comments made um, many deemed offensive and misogynistic. He uh, again says that he will not uh, resign, but will not seek reelection. And it's not clear how much time is left in his uh, term, but that's what he has announced he is willing to do at this point with impeachment efforts moving forward. Well, Britain's next prime minister will be Boris Johnson after he won a ballot vote of Conservative Party members against Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. It was announced today. Uh, Johnson, an avid supporter of Brexit, former mayor of London, had been expected to clinch victory against Hunt. He's going to replace uh, outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May tomorrow after she announced her resignation last month with a failure to lead the nation out of the European Union. He won 66 percent of the vote. Um, uh, uh, 92,153 of the total 159,320 people eligible to vote. Uh, he, uh, Hunt received 46,000, so a considerable uh, margin. There were 509 rejected ballot papers. The turnout was 87.4%. Johnson will be installed as prime minister in a formal handover from May on Wednesday when he will also visit the Queen and be asked to form a government. In his speech, uh, Johnson praised Hunt as a formidable opponent, Thank the outgoing prime minister for her extraordinary service to this party and our country, but then is prepared to move forward. Up next, we'll talk with Justin Bogie. He is the uh, senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs. We'll talk about the budget deal when we return. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Secretary Mnuchin and Se- uh, Speaker Pelosi released the final details of their backroom deal to bust through the 2011 Budget Control Act caps and raise the debt ceiling. Well, in a rare moment of fiscal discipline, you might recall way back in 2011, Congress passed the Budget Control Act and placed caps on discretionary spending. Since its passage, Congress has routinely violated the spending caps with no regard for the consequences or the agreement that they'd made. Well, this latest deal effectively renders that um, agreement, again, the Budget Control Act, pretty much dead. Well, here to talk with us about the budget deal that has uh, passed is uh, Justin Boggy. He is a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Georgine, good to be with you. Now, I imagine people who heard that, uh, yes, there's a budget agreement, that you might have heard a collective sigh of relief. Great, we're not going to see the drama in Washington that we've seen uh, trying to come up with an, an agreement or at least postpone making decisions. That might be the initial response until you look a little bit closer at the details. Give us a perspective of what this budget deal includes and why those of us who are concerned about our fiscal future ought to be concerned. Sure. Well, I certainly don't think anybody wanted to risk defaulting on the debt limit. That would have been a, a terrible move for uh, the markets, and, and we could have seen you know, negative con- consequences from that. But this is in no way a, a good way to deal with it. You know, First of all, um, the debt limit issue should have really been dealt with separately. It's, it's way too important to be dealt with uh, in the context of a big spending bill like this. Um, when you look at the actual spending portion of the bill, uh, this will add $322 billion in new spending over the next couple of years. But the long-term impact of that over the next 10 years, uh, I saw an estimate today, could be $1.7 trillion uh, added on to the national debt because of this uh, spending bill. And, you know, it's just a, another example of Congress not prioritizing money. Um, sure, there's a, there's a need for more defense spending, um, but but Republicans have really been held hostage uh by Democrats on this as, as a means to increase basically every other part of the federal government, which uh, a lot of those things we shouldn't be involved in in the first place. So uh, everyone's going to get more spending from this, and uh, taxpayers are going to be the real losers. So the Trump administration has apparently embraced this um, this deal as well, which violates the promises that he's made and, and the track record that he was trying to establish early on in his administration, calling this a, a real compromise. Right, and that's very concerning. You know, the president's put forth uh, three three of his own budget proposals now. Uh, the first proposal he had balanced the budget in less than ten years. The last two have called for you know really large cuts to federal spending, really trying to reshape the goal or the role of the federal government and and get the debt back under control. And this really flies in the face of that. This is uh, again over the next ten years could add up to one point seven trillion dollars onto the national debt. And, you know, really, in, in terms of spending deals, in terms of these Budget Control Act deals, uh, this is much – his two deals have been much larger than anything President Obama did. So in terms of spending and adding on to the national debt, uh, President Trump really hasn't been any better so far. And, and you know, most of us expected more from him on, on that front. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what that means. I mean, these are big numbers that we're talking about, and it's no surprise that Congress uh, seems to be willing to um, – raise the debt limit, even though in 2011 they said they put caps on discretionary spending. What does this mean moving forward? How is this going to impact the U.S. economy and maybe the larger question, uh, future generations? Yeah, and just to briefly recap, as you mentioned, we had these 
these caps put in place in 2011. Um, Congress has modified them. This will be uh, eight years out of 10, assuming that this bill uh, actually passes later in the week. And you're right, future generations are the ones who are really going to pay uh, the biggest price of this. Our debt is, our cumulative debt is already over $22 trillion. Uh, we're heading very close to 100% of GDP in, in terms of debt. Uh, when you get up to these levels, it really restricts economic growth. It means that every person out there, but particularly future generations, will see less income. They'll they'll have uh, a less of an opportunity to improve their lives. They won't have the same opportunities that their parents and, and grandparents have. And you know, if you if you care about the future at all, that that should be a sad and, and troubling uh, fact for you. And uh, the the longer that we continue to delay reforms, which is what this this bill is doing, you know, we we could have paid for this. We could have started some of these uh, reforms to, to programs like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid that are really driving spending. Uh, but instead, this is this is another missed opportunity. And the the longer that we put off these reforms, that will eventually have to be made. Uh, that the larger the cost is going to be for younger generations. Does this pose, and you correct me if it's an overstatement, a national security debt looking ahead if we do not learn to to manage our spending? Uh, certainly. And, and really, you know, Republicans are, are wanting to claim victory on this bill because uh, there, there's more defense spending. But uh, our, our defense experts at Heritage you know, think that especially the uh, 2021 level of spending that's been approved by this bill is, is inadequate. It's only about a 0.3% increase over uh, 2020. So that's, that's not even keeping up with inflation if we're, if we're really trying to build a more robust military and, and keep up with China and Russia. Uh, but, but the more debt we continue to accumulate, then the bigger the security risk it becomes. And I'll remind everyone out there that, that China is the number one or number two holder of our debt. Mm-hmm. They have they own over a trillion dollars of our debt. Um, and so if they ever decide to, to liquidate that, that could certainly cause us uh, – uh, bigger problems. So uh, this absolutely has the potential to be a national security risk. You know, in just five years or so, we're going to be spending more on interest payments on the national debt than we do on uh, national defense. That's from the Con- Congressional Budget Office. Um, so absolutely, the more debt we amassed, the, the bigger the risk of security. What do you think the prospects are of this succeeding in uh, Washington? Of, of this bill succeeding? Yes. Uh, well, you, you never know, and, and President Trump is always an X factor. I, I know he said, at least at this point, that he's going to support this bill. Um, my guess is that this passes later this week or we'll get through the Senate early next week, and this becomes law. But uh, never say never, but that certainly looks like that's the way it's heading. Mm. Well, this would be a good time to communicate with lawmakers if you feel strongly about uh, not just the present, but the future fiscal health of uh, this constitutional republic. Justin Boggy, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Good to be with you. Really appreciate it. Uh, Tony Perkins, writing on all of this uh, uh, for the Patriot Post, points out that Congress borrows trouble with this debt deal. And he writes, while the media is busy talking about China, Iran and North Korea, the biggest threat to America may be a one nobody's really talking about, the U.S. debt. Our country has plenty of enemies, but right now Congress spends 
uh, Congress's spending, rather, uh, may be doing more damage to America's future than any dictator ever could. Now that the U.S. is up against the borrowing limit, both parties have a chance to do something about it. But as everyone knows, talking about budget cuts isn't the problem. Finding leaders who will carry their uh, through with them is. If a good political compromise is one uh, that everyone hates, then uh, this weekend's debt ceiling proposal is a success. As of late Sunday, both sides were still trying to nail down details on a deal that would give America an even bigger credit limit over the next two years, with almost no real spending cuts to offset it. Conservatives like Representative Mike Johnson out of uh, Uh, Louisiana, head of the Republican Study Committee, can't believe the administration is even considering it. The last thing America should be doing, they insist, is make it easier for Congress to spend money it doesn't have. Think about it in terms of credit cards. Uh, Some Republicans have said, if you have a son or daughter who exceeds the limit, what do you do? Well, for starters, you rip up the card. Then you make it clear it's time to change the habits. So far, Congress has done neither. In fact, the preliminary plan hashed out between Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin isn't in the same ballpark as the White House's budget gurus who insist that any debt ceiling increase has to be tied to $150 billion in new cuts. What Pelosi and other members are suggesting, the Washington Post uh, Post points out, uh, does the exact opposite. It increases spending by tens of billions of dollars through 2021, completely ignoring the White House's request to start slashing money for government agencies starting in October. The measly 80 billion Pelosi does include in the offset are pocket change compared to what the president's team requested, not to mention the Post argues that wouldn't take place for years. And that's if a future Congress doesn't reverse them. Well, there you have it, and we'll certainly follow this story very closely as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned at the opening of the program, we spent the day yesterday with pastors from our community at our Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. It's one of my favorite events of the year. We were stationed at the first hole of the game, and so every pastor uh, who was playing golf, uh, he and his associates had to pass by, and we had an opportunity to greet all of them. And it's just a fun thing to see them enjoying uh, one another's company and playing a a bit of uh, of golf. Well, I noted, uh, and it was brought to my attention by our Director of Local Ministries, Mike Lee, here at KPDQ, that uh, one church uh, has suffered a loss Uh, And I appreciated, as Coin News uh, reported, I appreciated the response that the pastor chose uh, to take on this issue. Apparently a fire erupted in the parking lot of Grandview Baptist Church. I mention it for a number of reasons. You might want to chip in and help them respond to their uh, their current need. Uh, Mike uh, Mutchler started the Grandview Baptist Church about 35 years ago. Over the past three years, he says there's been about 16 times where people tried to steal gas from the church vehicles. Well, Sunday night was one of those times. However, it went terribly wrong. Surveillance video shows a person walking casually up with a drill in one hand and a gas can in another. Now, what could possibly go wrong? Well, the pastor told Coin Six News that he went under the van and then started running away because a fire erupted. You see him running away, surprised. This is the thief. He drops his drill um, near the car that he is uh, trying to extort gas from. It's uh, parked further on the property, and the sheriff's department uh, has all of that. But uh, the uh, van fire spread to two other vans in the church parking lot and destroyed both of them. There was a fourth van. It was saved by fire crews 
uh, who rushed to the church as first responders do. Well, these vans are used every day to pick up children for our summer program and then during the year for the school program, uh, the pastor says. We have, referring to the Grandview Christian Academy, about 400 students. Many of them need transportation back and forth, and the church provides that for parents. Well, Pastor uh, Mutchler said that he didn't know the vans were on fire until a Clackamas County deputy knocked on his door at about 2 a.m. At first, they were thinking someone just set the vans on fire, but then he uh, learned from the fire investigators a hole um, that was drilled into the gas tank. I don't know what on earth this individual was thinking as far as how to get gas from a vehicle, but they believe that uh, they were trying to steal the gas and it sparked, um, it created a spark, and that's what caused the fire. Well, Pastor Mike uh, Mutchler of the Grandview Baptist Church, which is in Beaver Creek, by the way, uh, said he took a look at the surveillance tape and it confirmed what he had thought. He says, no, I'm not angry when asked by Coin 6 News, and I'm certain by others as well. He's quoted as saying, I just figure we live in a world where bad things happen. I think it was someone looking for cheap fuel and wanting to take it. I don't think it was um, animosity against the church. I think it was just available and they wanted to take advantage of it. So, no, I don't feel angry. I don't think that's a proper response for us, referring to the church. Just last week, someone cut the catalytic converter off of another of the vans in a case he believes is not related to the van fires. The pastor says they don't have comprehensive insurance on their older vans. And uh, now they're trying to come up with about $30,000 to replace them. As I mentioned before, they uh, are responsible for transporting kids to and from, particularly through the summer, but in the school year as well. Well, Pastor Mutchler just wants whoever did this to know the church is there to help, no matter what. Huh. We would much rather people knock on our door and say they need gas money. It's a whole lot cheaper than replacing gas tanks, he says. It's just people have some messed up lives right now, and we try and help those lives. But if you're messed up, you do messed up things. Well, Pastor Mutchler He said he isn't going to change much in the parking lot because he wants it to be welcoming to the community and not closed off with a fence. I don't mind justice being done, he said, but I also want to be compassionate on any offender as well. Anyone with information about the crime is asked to contact the Oregon State Police. But again, the church is responding as one would expect the church to by extending grace and mercy to whoever is responsible uh, for the destruction of these three vans. And as I mentioned, three vans, $30,000. Just put it out there. We learned today that millions of people who take aspirin to prevent a heart attack may need to rethink the pill popping. I think most people who have been told this is what you need to do at least try to do it dutifully. Well, according to Harvard Harvard researchers reporting uh, on Monday, a daily low-dose aspirin is recommended for people who have already had a heart attack or a stroke and for those diagnosed with heart disease. But for the otherwise healthy, that advice has been overturned. Guidelines were released this year and ruled out routine aspirin use for any older adults who don't already have heart disease and said it's only for certain young people under doctor's orders. How many people need to get that message? Well, some 29 million people, 40 and older, were taking an aspirin a day despite having no known heart disease in 2017, the latest data available according to this new study from Harvard and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. About 6.6 million of them were doing so on their own 
A doctor never recommended it. It sounded like a good idea, so they just started doing it. Well, nearly half of people over 70 who don't have heart disease, estimated about 10 million, were taking daily aspirin for prevention, the researchers reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Well, many of these patients are confused about this. Dr. Colin O'Brien, a senior internal medicine resident at Beth Israel, who led the study, says, after all, for years, doctors urged people to leverage um, Aspirin's blood thinning properties to lower the chances of a first heart attack or a stroke. Then last year, three surprising new studies challenged that dogma. Those studies were some of the largest and longest to to test aspirin in people at low and moderate risk of a heart attack and found only marginal benefit, if any, especially for older adults. Yet the aspirin users experienced markedly more digestive tract bleeding along with some other side effects. So in March, those findings prompted a change in guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. People over 70 who don't have heart disease or are younger but at increased risk of bleeding should avoid daily aspirin for prevention. And only 40 to 70-year-olds who don't already have heart disease are at high risk of warrant, or rather to warrant, 75 to 100 milligrams of aspirin daily, and that's for a doctor to decide. Nothing has changed for heart attack survivors. Aspirin still is recommended for them, but there's no way to know how many otherwise healthy people got the word about the changed recommendations. So they're hoping that more uh, primary care doctors will talk with their patients about aspirin use and more patients will raise this with their doctors to clarify if they are among those who should be taking aspirin on a daily basis. So there you have it. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to talking with Steve Brown. His book is titled Talk the Walk. How to be right without being insufferable. There's a challenge to that, and he's going to tell us how to avoid it. And then on Thursday, I'm looking forward to our Radiothon with Holt International. It's giving uh, all of us an opportunity, first of all, to learn about an area of the world that uh, needs help and then to challenge us to consider whether or not we are being called to respond to that specific need. So I would encourage you to listen. I always appreciate the opportunity to learn the challenges that people face around the world, particularly children who have no uh, capacity to provide for themselves and whose parents may be struggling given the uh, the unique circumstances of their environment. Uh, but Holt International um, is going to give us an opportunity, again, to learn uh, more about what's happening and then an opportunity to respond. So that's coming up on Thursday, and I hope you will plan to join us. Then on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news, and I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, we're certainly going to um, break in if there is breaking news, and we'll share a little bit about some of the daily headlines, but the bulk of the day will be on the lighter side of the news. Also want to remind you tomorrow, the... Uh, Hearing with Robert Mueller is expected. Uh, He's going to be speaking to a couple of uh, congressional committees. Uh, There's a lot of debate as to whether or not this is going to reveal anything new, whether or not the American people need to hear it rather than take advantage of the opportunity to read the report. Given the fact that uh, Mr. Mueller says that he is not going to provide any additional information uh, than what was uh, in that report, we also learn that he is going to be accompanied by his attorney. And while uh, there was some debate uh, over whether or not the attorney was also going to be interviewed or if he would be speaking, it appears at this point that he will simply be there to advise Um, Mr. Mueller and will not be testifying before those committees. So on the one hand, there's uh, there's thinking that this will finally answer some questions, primarily among Democrats, uh, giving them an opportunity to highlight the areas that they had uh, specific concerns about. And it also provides Republicans an opportunity to ask questions about the origination of this whole process. And they are challenging 
um, the uh, viability of this investigation from its beginning. So while it probably won't provide a lot of new information, it could be rather interesting. And if the Democrats' calculation is right, people who haven't bothered to read the rather lengthy and dry report that's um, uh, very lightly redacted, um, this will be an opportunity to hear elements of it that they may not have been willing to read. So that's coming up tomorrow, and we'll certainly cover that as well. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend will be returning tomorrow to produce the program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.